Hello, welcome back. This is Adam Rosen. You're listening to the Total Need Tips and Pearls podcast. So on today's episode, I just wanted to, um, you know, briefly just cover a couple things because we're in interview time. Um, we had our first of two sessions of fellowship interviews this weekend, and I've talked about this, you know, previously, sort of, you know, what I would look for in a fellowship. But you know, just to reiterate that point again because it's been some time, you know, and to answer a lot of the questions um, that a lot of people have specifically about our fellowship or things that I think are important to look for, I just figured I'd kind of redo that now and make it an up-to-date version. So, you know, obviously, when you're an orthopedic resident and you're going to be an orthopedic surgeon in practice and you're going to extend your training by doing a fellowship, you know, a big portion is volume. You know, what's the volume of cases that you're going to do? So most of our fellows leave with around 500 cases under their belt. And you're going to see places that maybe do less than that, um, and you're going to see places that do more than that. And I think you just have to be cautious there, because if you if you fixate on just the number, you know, if you see a place that does 800, 1,000 cases, you know, the question then is, um, what does that do for your overall education? Meaning, you know, if you're doing 1,000 cases, um, how much time are you spending actually with your mentor? Uh, how much of it's on your own? How much of it's just watching and holding hook? Um, how much of that then takes away from time in the clinic. So we tend to think around 500 tends to be a good, you know, happy medium where you get enough volume to really solidify your skills um, without impinging on rushing through things by doing them, but not learning anything from them. And at the same time, by not doing so much more in the way of surgical cases that it prohibits your ability to learn in the clinic. Um, the next thing becomes autonomy. So, you know, in certain places you may go, you want to ask the question and talk to previous fellows. You know, did you go and watch and just hold hook for the first six months of the year? Um, or were you at a place where they just let you do surgery on their patients without any oversight? You know, in that case, just go out and practice on your own. Um, so, you know, I think our, our blend and balance of autonomy is very good, where for me, I am in every case from beginning to close. Um, and as I teach, you know, patients... Um, that are under my care, you know, the fellows are working with us and they're doing the cases, you know, step by step. You know, a lot of us are, you know, having the fellow be, you know, the primary component of performing the operation um, from very early on. And as long as you're learning these technical skills, people are moving along and doing more and more of the case. So there's not a period of time where people are you know, watching for six months and then six months in actually starting to participate in the operation. The other question that comes up a lot is implants. And um, there's there's some institutions where you're going to see, especially if they're under contract and have lots of consultants and um, implant designers, where you may only use one implant from one company for an entire year. And if you're comfortable with that implant and you go somewhere where you can use that implant, um, that might be great. And, you know, if every patient that needs a revision that comes to you has that implant in place, that might be great. Uh, I think it's a, a benefit in programs like ours where we use all of the implants. So as a fellow, um, you should be exposed to all of the implant companies because although they're all very similar, they're also slightly different. And it's nice to know the nuances about, you know, how, how you cut one knee versus the other. How do you balance one knee versus the other? Is there a reason to use one implant versus another, especially in the hip, you know, certain morphology, you know, might you switch on, you know, one company's component 
based on the other, based on the patient's anatomy. And I don't think it's great to go out into practice and have to basically relearn or reteach yourself a whole new system. Um, It's better to kind of see that in training. And then if you go to a hospital where maybe they only contract with one or two companies, you've at least used those or have seen those. Uh, The next most important thing, I think, is approaches that... You know, this comes about a lot more when we talk about the hip. Um, and what is interesting is that, you know, although posterior, you know, was predominantly the approach for hips, and, you know, occasionally people would go places where they would see anterior lateral, you know, many people are looking and have for a number of years have looked for places that offer direct anterior. And what is really interesting now is we've come so far that we are sometimes seeing applicants that have said that I have done nothing but direct anterior in my residency. I am looking for a fellowship to learn posterior. So I do think it is good to go to a place where you're going to have you know, fairly equal amounts of both posterior and anterior, or if you're very comfortable with one, you know, at least a place that offers enough exposure to the other approach. Because, um, you know, again, I'm mainly a knee guy. I'm doing less and less hips as I go further in my career. I've always done posterior. It works well for me. But if I was young and coming out into practice, you know, I understand that to find a job, I need to be able to do both posterior and anterior because if you're an applicant that you're applying to the same place I am and I do only posterior and you do posterior and anterior, they're probably going to take you. And if I go into town and I am across the street from you, and you offer anterior and posterior, and I only do posterior, more patients are going to come through your door. So I do think it's very important that you learn both, and then you can decide which approach works best for you, and which approach works best for you depending on the patient and the patient's anatomy. The other question that comes up is technology. Um, And again, I, I think there may be a point soon where you know some residents will get so much training with robotics, they may lack appropriate training with manual instrumentation. And I think that's a problem because you know at some point you're going to have to use manual or the robot's going to go down. But I also think it can be overwhelming to learn everything about a knee replacement along with all of the technology that comes with the robot. So I think it is good to do both. Um, it's one of the things I've personally struggled for. I've been trying to get, you know, robotics in for a number of years. And, you know, unfortunately, people get limited by the hospital system in which they work, you know, that they don't get to make the decision on, you know, when to bring those robots in. The other bigger thing that I'm more interested in is augmented reality. So I think as a resident, you know, looking at a place that in, you know, now or in the very near future when you go there for training, you know, is going to be offering robotics and technology. Um, you know, I've used plain old navigation for years. Um, we rarely use that anymore. Uh, one of my partners all the time um, uses uh, OrthoAlign, and I will use it on occasion. So if I have somebody with a deformity, prior hardware, you know, can't use manual instrumentation, OrthoAlign becomes my go-to for the femur or tibia or both. And I think that's a great technology for people to use because it's very, you know, easy, simple, small footprint. Um, but I do think augmented reality is going to be an incredible new boom because of the smaller footprint. And although it's not as technically advanced as many robotic systems are now, I think with the technology that's out there, it's going to catch up very, very quickly. It's going to offer you not only, you know, distal cutting angles, but I think very soon it's going to be offering you not only limb alignment, but balancing and sizing and all of those things. Um, You know, the next thing is clinic. And again, 
most surgeons don't always enjoy being in clinic. You know, I do enjoy, you know, clinic now more than I used to because um, I like talking to my patients. I like seeing them. But I think um, as a young surgeon coming out into practice, it's really important to realize that you need to know how to operate. But if you don't know who to operate on and you don't understand who after surgery is doing well and who has a problem, who needs a revision, you know, who needs an antibiotic, who needs further workup, um, who needs a manipulation under anesthesia, you're going to have to learn all of that on your own. And that's the whole practice of medicine. So as much as people sometimes think, you know, clinic is this negative or clinic is a punishment, clinic is part of the learning experience. So when you go out into practice, you need to be able to do both well. So I, I think if you get into a fellowship program where there is no clinic experience, you don't get to see patients alongside with your mentors to hear their thought process, hear how they speak to patients, hear how they talk about a surgery or discuss when something bad happens, um, you're going to miss out on a big, big part of the education. Um, the other thing to be important uh, or to understand that's important is that, you know, nobody's scudding you out. I think sometimes as a medical student, you know, you got to run all the labs and, you know, even as a, as a resident, you might just run around, do dressing changes or things like that. And, and it's kind of always been called scut work. So I, I think people have to understand is that as you get further on in practice, that when I see my patients and I book a surgery and I pick the implants and I let the reps know what I'm using and I check patients' labs and I look at x-rays, that's not scut work. That's part of caring for my patient. So if you come into training with the feeling or thought that looking at labs and you know putting in orders and calling reps and getting implants is scut work, uh, you may pick the wrong profession because that's going to be part of your job very quickly in a year. So I think it's very important that you get into a place where you are doing those things because then when you go into practice, you're not caught off guard to go, wait, when do I check the labs? Um, what, what labs am I looking for? Um, when am I supposed to call the reps? What implants do I have? And you start to learn, oh, what's in the hospital? What has to be called in? What's in town? What's out of town? And it teaches you that whole process um, and the other thing that I think is important is research. Um, you know, I, I see many applicants, I mean, it's a cr inc incredible as to how um, good applicants, um, applications are now in CVs. I mean, people are coming with, you know, way more uh, research than I even have now. Um, I've never been huge in research uh, as far as publishing. I, I have more of that clinical question of, hey, let's look at 10 patients because I'm curious about this X, Y, Z. Um, and I know some people come with very little desire to do a lot of research. But I do think it's important that you go somewhere where people are talking about research. So the idea of having journal clubs and reviewing the data and literature is very important to understand what you're reading and what to take away from that, what is important, and not to just believe at face value what someone concludes in their paper. I do think it's also important that you do one paper, so that's why we have all of our fellows do one paper at least so you understand the scientific process. How do you determine a hypothesis? You know, test the question, do your statistical analysis, you know, maybe write up a... Um, a contract for the IRB, um, and, and publish the paper and go through the reviewers and the process and the reiterations. And it's really important to understand that. The other thing which is nice is we occasionally get people that are very interested in research. Um, so the nice thing is we have a huge laundry list of projects that are either, you know, partially done or haven't been started and the data's done. And people can come and, and do 10 papers if they want, if they have the time to do so. Um, uh, but I think all of those are really the important things because, um, those become the common questions that people ask. And I guess I guess the other big question, too, is the revision. This is the other question 
Max, two more questions I think that are very common. Revisions and getting a job. So as far as revisions, you know, again, as a resident, you know, people are always interested in revisions. Be cautious of where you go in the percent volume of revisions because, again, if you go somewhere where they do a huge number of revisions and a lesser number of primaries, you know, the odds are you're probably not going to be, you know, doing much of the case of the revisions, um, especially in the beginning. So you might come out seeing a lot of revisions. And even if you do a lot of revisions, it's hard to get reps and get very technically savvy with primaries if you're doing lots of big revisions. Um, I think we have a very good, decent amount of revisions in the sense, and what I always explain to people is don't just look at the revision burden, but also ask about complex primaries. Because if you're doing a knee that is so deformed that it needs augments and stems and stabilized implants, it's just like a revision. You just didn't take anything out. Um, If you do a periprosthetic fracture, you know, and you do a, a revision stem, and, you know, you put on plates and screws just like you would close down an ETO. I mean, that's essentially a revision. As you do hip revisions, femoral or acetabular or both, and you're dealing with osteolysis or maybe you're revising something for instability, um, all of those things are little pieces of the puzzle. They're tips and tricks that you learn on treating instability, treating infection, treating fractures, treating osteolysis. How do you get a cup out? You know, how do you how do you treat a... Um, dysplastic hip is very, very similar to how you treat a, you know, large hip that has osteolysis, just the cup sizes and reamers are bigger or smaller, you know, dealing with a periprosthetic femur fracture in a hip or osteolysis, removing cement, putting on circlage cables, and in a knee, you know, putting on augment stems, distal femoral replacements, um, all of those things are little parts of the puzzle. So when you leave, you're never going to see the exact same revision, but you're going to have all those tools in your head and those skills in your hands to do those. Uh, and the last thing is getting a job. I think, you know, sometimes people come to fellowship and already have a job lined up, which is great. Um, sometimes they're not sure. So the reps, wherever you go, are a great resource, you know, because a lot of times if you say, hey, I'm looking for a job, the reps can ask their other reps within the company around the country, you know, hey, who's looking for a fellowship trained arthroplasty surgeon? And the other huge benefit of the reps is the rep will talk to the rep to find out, you know, the group that is looking, are they a good group, you know, or are they a bad group? You know, they may say, hey, a group's looking, but we wouldn't recommend because they tend to bring in a young guy, overwork him, underpay him, and then fire him um, versus, you know, a group that was solid in the community. And they'll say, oh, they're all great guys, great program, you know, senior partner, retired. So they can really give you some good insight. Um, And then also fellowship to fellowship, you know, you'll have a lot of programs where um, someone's looking for a person, they'll start sending out emails or making phone calls to say, hey, you know, we're, we know that you guys put out good fellows. Um, we're looking to have someone that's arthroplasty trained join our group. Do you have anybody, you know, this year or next year coming up that doesn't have a job lined up? So jobs are, you know, never an issue. Um, and then the mentorship, you know, process, I would guess I would leave you with the last thing that I, I can't believe that Anybody would go somewhere, spend a year, and never talk to those people again. So I think it is important that you have a good mentorship program where, you know, if you leave and you have questions, that you can call back, you know, email, text, you know, your your mentors and say, hey, you know, I have a big case coming up. Um, I have a question. Or, you know, sending us, you know, more commonly, I get pictures, you know, of an x-ray and, hey, I got this horrific revision. I'm planning X, Y, Z. And the nice thing is 99% of the time, everything that they recommend is everything that I would have done too, um, which means that those people were trained well. So I think just important points and tips that um, you might want to think about when you're looking at a fellowship program, you know, whether or not it's arthroplasty or not, but a lot of the same 
kind of components may fit into whether or not you're looking at a sports fellowship or a spine fellowship or a hand or foot and ankle fellowship and just kind of help you organize your thoughts and then put into order for your rank list as to where you think would be the best fit for you. So until next time, stay safe. I'm Adam Rosen and thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.